Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're healthy, strong, uh, feeling uh, vivacious, uh, vitality, molto, uh, molto, mucho, bien. What? What's happening? Don't, don't, listen, cut that out. Don't even pay attention to any of that. Uh, I, have a, I have a sore throat. And I'm on NyQuil right now, so uh, I'm a little loopy. I'm, I'm, I might say some things <laughs> during this intro that I otherwise might not, but I'm leaving it in. I'm leaving it in because this is life, people. It's not beautiful. Uh, there are there's sometimes you don't get to uh, do a, 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 a take two, a double take, a take. What, what's the difference? Anyway, I'm excited, obviously, for today's episode. Uh we have Poonam Desai, who's an author uh, of Sincerely Life, which is the number one release on Amazon. Uh, we, we had a great time today. We talk about all, all the things today. Uh, she has a master's in public policy, and we talk about how she attempted suicide twice in her life and, and what got her through. Of course, like I said, we don't get into the specifics, uh, but we talk about why she felt like a burden, why she felt lonely, uh, and the downside of being the good kid. Like uh, we, we are often hear parents and, and uh, say, oh, he's such a good kid. She's such a good kid. Um, they're such a good kid. Uh, and, and we think that that's a good thing. But being the good kid isn't always a good thing. And we talk about why that is. Uh, she talks about her struggle with depression, anxiety, suicide ideations, and, and how she went from being a swimmer to a power lifter and then uh, going into yoga and meditation and how that's helped save her life, as did writing this book, Sincerely Life. Like, she reached a point where she knew that she didn't get these thoughts out on paper. Uh, she may not be here much longer. So writing this book is one of the things that saved her life. And we talk about this idea of being, just be grateful why that could be a dangerous thing for us too, to just be grateful. Um, and then we talk about love. That's right. We get into relationships and the perils of learning love from television and, and the things we should be looking for or not should be, but the other things that we could be looking for besides love. And, and that because love isn't the only thing that's important. We know that. Uh, then we also get into finances. That's right. We talk about money because uh, they ain't no ain't no romance without the finance. You heard that before, right? Uh, and the two economic concepts that you need to know. So if you're struggling with relationships, money, uh, mental health, we got all the things for you today. We're covering all of it from A to Z. And once again. Uh, if you're struggling with a transition, trauma, or tragedy, find your way over to thrivewithleo.com. Work with yours one-on-one, -on -one, truly. All right, let's get you to tomorrow together. And with that said, let's jump into the episode with Poonam Desai. So did, did you grow up as like the only Indian in your, in your school, in your class as a kid? 
No, I actually, so I grew up in Plano, Texas. Uh, and Plano, Texas is a pretty well-to-do socioeconomic uh, place. And the reason I mention the socioeconomic of it is because the discrimination that people face there is not so much racial as it is they judge you by how wealthy you are. And so, um, you know, and, and the reason that's important is because it's a very, I don't want to say it's a diverse place necessarily because it's like not it just has a lot more minorities, but it has, you know, like it's mostly predominantly white and Asian and, you know, South Asian and Oriental Asian. So like all of Asian and white. So it's, I'm not saying it's super diverse because it's, it's really not. When I think of diversity, I'm thinking of all ethnicities, you know, all skin tones, all that jazz. Um, but I grew up on the East side, which I considered a lot more ethnically diverse because that's where you'd see a lot more integration of different cultures. You'd see like Ethiopians and Latinos and, you know, Lebanese and white and Indian and all that. So that one, I grew up in the more quote diverse side of Plano. Um, so I wasn't the only Indian kid in my class, but I was the only Indian that um, grew up as a second generation kid. So my dad was born and raised in Oklahoma and he actually was the first India Indian man born in Oklahoma. He has a certificate from the mayor. It's so I'm like, I'm descended from a celebrity. What? But uh, so I kind of um, felt, you know, how a lot of, you know, African American or Indian American or Asian American, they face that dual struggle of their culture versus American culture. Right. I faced that a little bit more intensely just because my dad, you know, grew up with American culture. So, you know, my mom would say, you know, go study. And my dad's like, no, go to the football game. My mom was like, stay at home and go to college. And my dad's like, no, go experience college, you know, outside of the States. And my mom's like, don't go to prom, what a waste of money. And my dad's like, you gotta go to prom. So it was just like those small micro things, but then also their philosophies that were really different. So I was really one of the only Indian kids who like didn't do classical Indian dance. I was an athlete, but I was a swimmer, you know, so just small things like that. Oh, so, oh, swimmer. That's uh, what would you swim? Um, I swam everything. I was 15 years competitive swimmer. Um, I qualified for like regionals and nationals. So um, it was I was the first I'm the first athlete out of anybody like in my immediate and extended family, really. But um, so I swam everything. But my best I was good at actually everything except for butterfly. Like I'm the exact opposite of Michael Phelps. You know how Michael Phelps looks like a fish just smoothing, like glide, gliding in the water. Yeah, yeah. I look like I'm drowning. I look the exact opposite. <laughs> I do not look like I know how to handle myself in the water when I swim butterfly, but it's fine. It was, it was fine. I avoided that particular stroke at all costs. I love that. Now, what got you into swimming? Was it like, did your father throw you in a deep end when you were a kid or was it just something that you, you, you saw a poster? Did you see Michael Phelps? No, no, not at that at all. Um, I actually, when I was younger, we did a variety. My mom wanted to put me in some kind of, you know, athletics of some kind. Um, she definite, and she didn't want any sport that could be played outside because, you know, colorism was something that she grew up with. And so she didn't want me to ever be outside because, you know, Indians like you don't want to get too dark, which is so sad. And I still have that kind of ingrained in my own mind. But so that knocked out a lot of outdoor sports for me. Um, and she I used to do dance like ballet, um, but I just wasn't very good. And then I did gymnastics and 
Um, my sister and I are like very inseparable. So my mom wanted us to do a sport together and my sister kept breaking all of her damn limbs when she was doing gymnastics. So I was like, all right, like we got, we got to get out of here. Cause she's broken literally all 10 of her fingers. So then my mom found swimming and I think she really liked it cause it, it was indoors. Um, it was cardio heavy and it's a safe sport. Like it's a relatively safe sport, you know, like it's very hard to get injured. Like you can have swimmers shoulder problems, but that's about it. You know, it's hard to break something in the pool. So that's kind of just literally how we did. And then we just stuck with it for 15 years. Um, uh, and if you, I don't, I really, to this day, I don't know why we did it for 15 years, but we just did. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, did you have Olympic dreams? I, I would, I would assume that there, you know, you're always trying to love a lot, but if you did regionals, you know, what's crazy is that the more I, I think I honestly did it just because I was a very disciplined individual and I was also the good kid. Like, you know, in the sense I didn't question the good kid. I mean, I didn't question anything my parents told me. I just did what they told me to do. So they said, no, you're going to practice today. I said, OK. But if I really thought about my own dreams, I had no intention of swimming for the Olympics, nor even in college. Like I didn't want to swim in college either because I knew college. I already was swimming four hours a day. And then college is even more intense than that. But I just, you know, my parents said, no, it, you know, you can't let go of swimming. Then what, you know, you're not showing discipline and blah, blah, blah. So I just kind of did what they told me to do. I just blindly was like, okay, I'm going to go to practice and I'm going to keep swimming without ever questioning what's the end goal here. And then, you know, eventually college came and I just, I just quit because I was like, okay, well now I'm not swimming in college. So, I mean, really I had no dreams of being in the Olympics or anything. I just kind of did it I felt like more than anything because I didn't have an option if that makes sense yeah I, I would imagine then that uh being the good kid and I, I've heard this from the good kids and I've heard it from parents where the kid states that, that they get older and then aren't sure of who they are as a person and what they like and what they don't like and what they need and don't need because they've just been doing what they've been told most of their life and then the parents find that now they have to um not work more, but parent the kid more as an adult because they've been they've overparented them as a kid, uh, and now the kid doesn't really know what to do out in the real world. Are, are you finding that now as an adult that you're struggling with like w what do I need, what do I want, that kind of thing? Absolutely, like to a hundred percent the T. Um, and I, I think more than anything, it's like I don't even it's not that I don't know who I am, but I low key don't know who I am. If someone asks me, what do you like to do for fun? I genuinely don't know what I like to do for fun because I've always done something because it had an end goal. You know, I, um, I always, I don't know even how to explain it, but I don't really know what my hobbies are because I was always doing what I thought would make my parents proud and what I thought would bring me up in society and be an upstanding citizen. So now as this young 26 year old woman, I'm having to unlearn a lot of, it's not bullshit, but it is kind of ridiculous. The amount of stuff that I'm not only having to learn, unlearn because the education system didn't teach a, you know, teach those things to us, but also unlearn a lot about myself. And it kind of, when you're the good kid and then you leave college, right. And then you're out in the real world, you realize, you know, everyone's like, Oh, the world's your oyster. And I'm like, bro, I need you to tell me exactly what kind of oyster, where do I find this oyster? How much is the, you know, like, I just need that almost structure because I haven't been able to live without it. 
And if you grow up from a, you know, from the minute you're born with that structure and someone constantly telling you to do, and then they drop you and they, in the deep end and they're like, Hey, good luck. Like you get to figure everything else out that you want on your own. It's almost disrespectful and in a way cruel because I spent three years or three to four years of my life post-college unlearning so much that, oh, you can do things for yourself. Oh, you don't need to constantly prove to others that you're worthy of being a person. Oh, you don't need to constantly be achieving something huge to be worthy in society. You know, um, you just, and it's, it's hard because my parents are like, where's your confidence? And I'm like, it's shot, bro, because I don't know what I'm doing and it's scary. So absolutely. I find myself with that all the time. I'm 44. I I mean, and and, and I still struggle with that of like, just I wake up every day almost with with a panic attack of I got to prove myself yesterday uh, is over and uh, I'm starting from square one again, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) and and to other people, it looks like I'm a go getter. They're like, wow, you get up at 5 a.m., 6 a.m. Wow, you're so great. I'm like, no, I'm like, I'm terrified to lay in bed a minute longer. (laughs) I felt like I I just, (laughs) no, I I totally feel that because it's like some, you know, you're terrified to be in bed any longer because you're like, Oh, I'm wasting my life if I'm in bed any longer. But then sometimes I also feel the opposite where I'm like, what am I waking up for today? Because I don't know what I'm doing. So can I just sit here in this little safe space that I have where my bed doesn't expect anything from me other than to sleep in it. And I'm already doing that very, very well. You know, it's like a weird dynamic. Uh, yeah. Cause you, you talk about, you know, unlearning, you know, the bullshit and all the things that you, you grew up with and, uh, and the, and the routines and protocols that, you know, you just felt uh, obligated to. And I would assume your sister was not so much the good kid, right? She, she was probably the, the, the black, leather jacket wearing cigarette in the sleeve kind of how would you describe I mean your I mean like yes and no I you know it's weird because I was labeled by I was labeled as that black sheep by a lot of people outside of my family um just because I expressed individuality at the same time so it was weird because my parents had very high expectations of me but they my mom always let me be who I wanted to be. And she never questioned it. Like if I wanted to dye my hair blue, fine. If I wanted to go get another piercing, fine. It was, it was such a weird dynamic. Um, so a lot, you know, I would, um, I, especially in my spiritual group when I was like my young youth leadership group, you know, parents told their kids to stay away from me because I cussed and I had more than one piercing on each of my ears. And eventually, you know, I had tattoos and my hair was a different color, you know, so they didn't even get to know me as a person. They just kind of made that snap judgment about me. Um, and then my sister, on the other hand, everyone kind of really loved her because she was like by Indian standards, the good kid, you know, she, she was, uh, very, she is very, very smart. She was, she graduated in the top 3% of our high school, which is impressive because we went to Plano and Plano had the highest graduating high school class consistently every year when we were both in uh, high school in the nation. So, you know, she, she's like this very, very smart kid. Um, you know, and so by Indian standards, she was, great. And everybody loved her because she was so smart. And, you know, she was, she just kind of didn't question things and she wasn't loud, you know, I'm loud, but she wasn't loud. She just did whatever she wanted. And then, um, I I don't know. So it was like, 
in a lot of ways, I felt not, I don't want to say, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I felt like I could never live up to her because I worked very hard in school, but I could just never get the grades, you know, or never get the, I don't know, the status of like smart kid. Um, she got scholarships to college. I had to pay my way through. So it was like this weird dynamic, but I was the good kid in the sense that I was disciplined and my mom, you know, my mom and my dad always said, Oh, you know, honey, it's, they would dead ass say to my face, it's okay that you're not smart. You're just a hard worker and that's, what's going to get you through to life. And so when I mean like unlearning stuff, I had to unlearn that I'm actually very intelligent and I'm brilliant just because a school system told me I wasn't, didn't mean that I, you know, that I wasn't. And that's like a horrible thing to believe your whole life. And then when you're 22, realize, no, you're actually very intelligent. It's just because you didn't get nineties on everything that people thought you were stupid, if that makes sense. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause I mean, you know, now that we're all, everybody's talking about how there's social intelligence and how social intelligence actually trumps, uh, you know, school or, you know, your IQ and SAT scores in terms of success. And now they're looking at emotional intelligence also, so there, mm-hmm. there's so many different factors into how and why a person becomes, quote unquote, successful or makes it in life outside of being able to uh, read a chapter and then uh, regurgitate it at the end of a week or month or whatever. Right. You know, and I mean, in in this in the book that I wrote, I dedicated a whole chapter to education because I was just it was more than anything for me, kind of like a therapy for me. But I was like this is so ridiculous. Like, I can't believe I spent 22 years of my life thinking that I wasn't smart because one system told me that I wasn't. And I see the shit that's going on today. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, like, I can't believe these people who are in charge were the same people who told me that I wasn't intelligent enough when they're handling situations like this, like (laughs) in this manner, you know? And so I just kind of was like, nah, I'm going to write about this. So people can be reminded that there's so many different types of intelligence and that if you don't meet one system, that doesn't mean that you're not worthy. That doesn't mean that your intelligence isn't valuable. That doesn't mean, and that doesn't mean on the flip side that you don't have anything to learn just because the system did tell you that you were worthy. You know, you always, as an individual, as a member of this world society should be constantly learning and humble enough to know that you don't know everything in that, but at the same time, confident enough to know that you're smart, and your worth and value doesn't depend on one system validating that. I love that. It's almost like Einstein talking about, you know, if you uh, ask a fish to, to climb a tree, it's like, what, mm-hmm. do you, what do you expect that fish to do? Um, and your book that you mentioned, Sincerely Life, is a number one release on Amazon. So congratulations for that. Thank you so much. Now, I would imagine that when you talk about unlearning, some of those these principles are in that book, Sincerely Life. Can you talk to us about what the book's about? Sure, absolutely. So um, if I like if we're just going to be completely honest about this, I people always are like, oh, it must have been so inspiring. You must have had a aha moment. And I'm like, no, I wrote this because I didn't have a job, so I couldn't afford therapy. Um, and I couldn't afford mental health services, but I needed something, you know, I needed a way to, because, you know, when you're unlearning so much at such an intense rate and quickly, there's so many emotions swirling, right? Like there's anger and frustration and sadness and fear, and they're all integrated and then layered on top of one another. And so then 
your mind, if you don't have some kind of outlet, your mind is just beginning to low key implode. Cause you're like, I don't know what is going on here. And I'm terrified because at, at the very core of everything, when I couldn't find work and I, you know, was recognizing so much of what I had been taught was kind of not true. I had so swirl of emotions that if I didn't find a way to get it out there or, you know, just out of my system and process it, that there, I wasn't, I literally felt like I wasn't going to make it. So I started just, you know, word vomiting all my thoughts onto my laptop, just when I was on the dart, just typing, typing, typing. And eventually, you know, I kind of was reading through these thoughts and I was like, okay, like this is helping me not only process my own emotions, but then when I would talk with my friends, a lot of them would have the same fears. A lot of them would have the same concerns. A lot of them were like, I feel lost. I don't know if I'm going to make it. You know, I'm unlearning how to, you know, well, rather I'm learning how to love myself just as I am, or I'm learning that success doesn't mean the same way my parents taught me, or I'm dealing with death for the first time, or I don't know how to find my happy, you know, like all these things as a young adult, you're just terrified because they don't teach you this in school anywhere. No one ever asks you what makes you happy. They always ask, what's your next job or what's the next ladder career? And it's not that those quite, you know, the career questions aren't important, but it's like, you're not alive for a career. You're alive to explore this experience that is life. And so I, um, the more I had those conversations, I was like, this is ridiculous. So all of us are feeling like this, but nobody's doing anything about it. No one's talking about it. No one's creating a safe space to where we feel we can ask these rather philosophical questions and just learn from one another. So I kind of took all my thoughts and I broke them down into different categories. So in the book, there's categories on individuality, beauty, um, you know, how to deal with fam, how to recognize what a family really means to you or how to, you know, handle friendships or whatnot, you know, and I just broke those down by categories of all these philosophical questions that we have, but they're not explored. And then, um, and then once I broke them down by category, I just kind of created the 60 day little guide that way. Every day you work a little bit about yourself or every day you have one question that you're contemplating about yourself and you kind of go explore that about yourself and you can ask others, you can, explore your own creativity, whatever. But the whole point of it is that by the time you're done with the book, it's not that like you're going to have a complete life manual or that life, life's biggest questions are going to be answered. It's just that hopefully by the end of the book, you kind of know a little bit more about who you are and you feel a little more grounded. And the reason I say hopefully is because to be honest, it's not going to happen in 60 days. You know what I'm saying? Like that does not happen in 60 days, but it asks you those questions that over time you're constantly kind of being aware of those questions and being aware of what are your own philosophies. That way, when you're making decisions, life decisions, you're making them in the goal that you set or in the vision that you set for yourself and not one that you're just like blindly following that society gave you. I love that. You know, I've, I've come to the place where I recognize that, uh, it's the, um, value, not the value of the question, but, just getting better at asking myself better questions versus uh, walking around with a bunch of statements um, or affirmations that I'm making to myself. And uh, I, I found that like, like when I go to bed at night, I, I ask myself, like, how do I wake up with more vitality instead of telling myself to wake up with more vitality, Yes, you know, to get my brain yes. in that explore, explorative mode. Uh, is that something that you incorporate? Do you, do you ask yourself questions before bed or, what, what resonated with you? 
all of that. I mean, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's so because everyone's like, fake it till you make it, fake it till you make it. And on one hand, I see the value in that. But on the other hand, I'm like, why do we have to fake anything? Why can't we make it normal and saying, you know, I don't feel great. And then ask ourselves, hey, why don't I feel great? And then explore that. It's like, okay, I feel scared because I don't know if I'm moving anywhere in my job or, oh, okay, I want to have children, but I feel like I'm kind of missing out on a healthy relationship with a solid partner or whatever it might be. I think that when we tell ourselves these definitive statements, um, it's like really important when you're trying to create a vision. But on the other hand, it's also it's hard to create a precise and accurate vision when you're not asking yourself the deep fundamental questions. So absolutely, when you ask yourself, how can I have more vitality? That's asking your mind, hey, what brings life to you? And nine times out of 10, your first reaction is you don't know, you know, and that's okay to not know because then you kind of realize, okay, well, I feel a lot better when I listen to music or, oh, okay, I feel better when I work out. Or, oh, I feel really, or vice versa, oh, I feel really drained when I hang out with this particular individual, right? And it's all of those, when you ask yourselves those questions, there, it gives you a more comprehensive answer, actually, inevitably, you know? So it's not just this one person's causing my problem, but it's okay. I need to limit this time with my this person, incorporate more music into my life, make sure I'm consistently working out and eating a little cleaner. And once you've asked yourself that question, then yeah, that's how you're bringing more vitality to your life if that's what you've explored works with you. And so I think, um, you know, I ask myself that que- those questions all the time. And it again, it came through a lot of life learning. It came through having to be at my rock bottom to where asking myself the question why was the only way I was going to get out of myself out of that hole instead of just saying, I'm in a hole. That, well, yeah, okay, but why are you in this hole? What got you here? How can you get out of the hole? What are the resources you have at your disposal to get out of the hole? You know, what can you do? Who can you reach out to? What do you need? You know, et cetera. And, and that's important for a lot of people right now who are in a hole. I mean, so many people have lost their jobs, their relationships, uh, mm-hmm. or even a loved one for, you know, different reasons. And and they, and they are uh, processing things or framing things in terms of, I lost my job. I lost a loved one. Um, I uh, I was dumped. Versus, um, you know, how do I, you know, uh, you know, make money from? Uh, how do I support myself now? Or what resources do I have to support myself? Or uh, who are the people left that do love me? You know, like these are these are questions that get you thinking in the affirmative and in the positive. Uh, Poonam, right. Poonam, you said earlier that uh, you wrote this book uh, because you were like, if I don't get this out, then I'm not going to make it. Can you can you expand more on that? Sure, absolutely. So um, I I think I mentioned this, or like I kind of wrote about it a little bit earlier when I was you know sending you the information uh, about the podcast and whatnot, but. I have struggled with suicidal ideation and suicidal thoughts since I was 13, like a very young kid. Um, I have attempted suicide twice. And I and the reason I bring that up is because, you know, there's this very large misconception that people who commit, you know, or who die by suicide, excuse me, who die by suicide 
are, it's just horrible misconceptions that they're weak, that they are too lazy to get themselves out of a situation or whatnot. But the truth of the matter is you just want the pain to stop. You just want some peace. You want some relief. And so when I was, and of course, when I was younger, I didn't know that that that's what it was. Right. Like I just thought, okay, when I was younger, I was like, all right, my mom and I are fighting all the time. I am making my parents miserable. I'm a disgraceful child. Like if I just die, then their problems will be solved and my problems will be solved. And again, I didn't realize that that's what it was. I thought it was actually very, very normal. Um, and I thought everybody went through that. And then of course, as I started getting more information, I realized, Oh, that is not normal. So then I went on the complete opposite extreme where I was like, Oh my God, I'm a freak. I am, I'm alone in this. Nobody else knows how I feel. I'm an outcast and I can't talk about this and I can't say anything. Otherwise people are going to look at me like I have, you know, uh, like some plague or something, which is, I mean, awkward with COVID, but you know, uh, you get what I mean. Right. So it's like, and, and then I, ha- when I went to college, I got a lot better. I got so much better because, and I, I really do think it's because I was so busy and I had goals that I was striving for and I was constantly surrounded by people and I was, I was just thriving. I was living and thriving and I was not with my parents all the time. And that made a huge difference. And I was really learning who Poonam was just as this young woman. But then, um, you know, I left college and I, I'm not, I'm not trying to even toot my own horn here, but I hustled very hard in college by the, I was in college for four and a half years and I earned three degrees, one of which was a master's. And then I had a lot of internship experience. I had a great network. So, you know, I, I did everything right. I did everything right. I hustled. I was like, okay, finally, my hard work's going to pay off. My life's going to start. I'm going to um, have a great job. I'm going to make my impact on the world and I'm going to help make this world a better place and blah, 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 blah. Right. And it was great and it's wonderful, but I couldn't find work for 18 months. And especially in the American society, so much of our self-worth is tied to our work. And if we're working, not even like what we're doing, but if we're working, you know, if you say you're unemployed, people look at you and they're automatically thinking, oh, you're lazy or there's something wrong with you. Or, oh, like if I stand too close to her, I'm going to catch the unemployment, you know? And so all of those um, conceptions were really just lowering my confidence and lowering my worth. And then I couldn't understand what was wrong with me. I just couldn't understand why I wasn't landing work and why I wasn't good enough and why I, I just couldn't do it. And then, you know, when that started happening, that trailed into other parts of my life. So, uh, you know, I started fighting more with my parents and I had to go live with my parents because I, you know, I couldn't find work. And, um, I wasn't about to go, go into debt just to have rent. Eventually I did move out, but you know, in that, in that time I couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford, um, seeing a mental health professional. I, and then there was other social factors. I wasn't seeing my friends as much. And I watched the love of my life, marry somebody else. And there's all these combining factors. And so one, you know, I just started getting dark, deeper and, you know, sitting deeper rather in this dark hole. And eventually I got back to those questions where I was like, what is even the point? Why am I here? What's the purpose? You know, all those questions I had when I was younger and it started to scare me because I really, you know, I think when you get over, um, 
that those periods of time where you're contemplating suicide, you think they're never going to happen again. And which is not true, but I was terrified because I was like, oh my gosh, I'm back in this dark place again. I'm back in this dark place again. I didn't think I was going to get there again. You know, so that scared me on top of everything. And I was like, okay, I cannot go back to that place because if I do, I really don't know if this time I won't, I guess, for lack of better words, finish the job. And that, that scared me more than anything. And I was tired of being numb to everything, but not so numb that if I died, it didn't scare me. So, which kind of gave me off ironically a glimmer of hope, like, okay, if I can feel scared about dying, then I clearly care about something. So, um, I started writing, but that, that's really why I thought I wasn't going to make it. Cause I was like, I have to live 80 more years like this. I'm barely surviving these three. I don't know how I'm going to make it. But then also what's the point, you know, at least this pain will stop. If I'm dead, I don't have to worry about what's my life purpose and am I going to make it in financial stability and all of that jazz. Like I don't have to worry about any of it, but I also recognize that that more than anything, I think deep down, I realized I do want to live. I just don't know how to do it right now, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Uh, there was an NFL player. It's one of the reasons why I started this podcast. Um, there was an NFL player going, going, circling all the way back to what we were talking about in the beginning with football, who was a Heisman Trophy winner, played for the Bears and ended his life at the age of 30. And I asked, uh, I ran into a friend of his years later and asked him why he did it and he said he didn't know how to take care of himself Mm -hmm. and i was like wow this guy with all the money all the resources all that access doesn't know how to take care of himself how many more people are out there like that and so that was the impetus for this this podcast and so for the listeners out there who are going through pain you can turn there's a way for you to turn that pain into purpose to turn that pain into promise. Um, and, and like how, you know, Poonam, how you turned it into a book uh, mm-hmm. because you realize you're not the only one. Like as a kid, we think we're the, like you said, you thought you were the only one who felt like that. And I want to ask you something. Why did you feel like you were the only one who, uh, that, that it was normal, the arguing with your parents, the, the back and forth, the, 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 the amount of discourse and uh, tension that was in the household? Was it because of TV shows, movies? Like, what, what made you feel like that was normal? Um, you mean, like, just to clarify, you mean, like, the the discord in my house? Like, what made me think that, that was, the discord was normal? Yeah, because yeah, uh, going back, you said in the beginning when you, when you and your parents were arguing and uh, that there was a part of you that thought that it was normal to argue. And then you, you, you start to feel like, Oh, maybe they would be better off without me. Um, you start mm-hmm. to feel like a burden. So first it was, oh, oh, well, this is normal. And then I think you said that, uh, it was just too much for you. You start to feel like a burden, but I, I guess I'm asking like why you initially thought that the, the arguing, uh, or in the, in the tension was a, a normal thing, uh, for, because of your age and, uh, and the dynamics? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Um, I think it's, well, first of all, 
in the South Asian community, mental health is like, you know, something that apparently doesn't exist. If you say they'll, they'll literally say, well, all of this pain that you're feeling is in your head. And it's like, yeah, bro, that's exactly what I said. But it means two different things, you know, to the older South Asian generation. They're like, you know, you're just, you're complaining about nothing. And anytime I would be upset, it was like always greeted with be grateful, be grateful, be grateful for this, for that, for this, for that. And, uh, you know, honestly, I fought with my mom a lot and we have, again, a very interesting relationship and interesting, both in the good and bad definitions of the term, but we would fight so much and it was getting, you know, and I, I, the reason I thought it was normal, I guess, was because a lot of my other friends experienced it too. And so we would joke about it and no one would kind of look at us and say, that's not normal. You know, like there was no other frame of reference. So we all thought that was normal, that our moms were like this. And my mom was very strict growing up. And you, you know, you know, that whole quote that moms use where they're like, you know, I brought you into this world. I can take you out. And everyone's like, ah, that's so funny. But for me, I was like, uh, bro, my mom absolutely will take me out. And so she would, when I was younger, boarding school was often used as a threat for misbehavior. Um, or I remember one time I tried to run away and my mom saw the suitcase and she was like, you need to get a different suitcase. Cause that one doesn't belong to you and make sure you don't come back. Or, um, and then one time I tried to cut my own wrists, but I couldn't do it. And so I slashed a, uh, slash basically on, on our window screen and a window screen. My mom looked at it and said, next time, make sure you take that, your anger out on your own body. Don't deface my property. And so when you grow up with that kind of response, more than anything, you as a young kid are crying out to be heard. You're crying out to be seen and you're crying out for comfort and safety. But when you're met with those types of responses and you don't get that nurture necessarily, you just kind of shut down. You don't even begin to even question if this is normal or if this is not normal. You're, you're kind of in this weird survival mode, right? And you're kind of like, I'm not going to say anything And I'm just going to keep plugging along because if I say something, not necessarily that I feared for my life, but I was like, it's just not worth the fight anymore. And one thing that really kept me going was my little sister. She is my everything. So when my mom and I would fight a lot, it it would take a toll on her and she'd start crying and she'd get scared. And I, I couldn't watch that happen to her. So for more than anything, I would swallow a lot of my pain and not say shit because I didn't want that to come to light because it would always lead to an argument. Um, but like I said, I didn't recognize that these those arguments and that type of response and that type of behavior wasn't normal until I got to college. And I would make those same jokes about like, you know, the way I grew up with different types of people. Um, with different backgrounds and by back, I'm not just ethnicity backgrounds, but religious backgrounds, upbringing, all that jazz. And people would look at me and they would kind of give me this weird look of horror. And they would say that is not normal. And 
when they would say it like that, I would be, I was always at first initially embarrassed, but then I realized if so many people are reacting like that and saying that's not normal, then maybe there's something to unpack here. And maybe there's something to look at here because if that many people are saying that's not normal, then I need to recognize that it's not that I'm abnormal or that I'm weird. It's just that what I went through has molded me a certain way, but what I went through isn't normal. And so I need to kind of unpack that and then redefine who I kind of want to be understanding what I went through, if that makes sense. I'm not sure if that answered your question. Absolutely. No, no, that answered it perfectly because a, a lot of us grew up. I remember, you know, my mom's from Belize and I remember telling my, my girlfriend about how my mom would, uh, you know, whip us with uh, a belt, with an extension cord, uh, you know, a branch. And to me, that was normal because all my all my friends, uh, all my boys got uh, got punished the same way. And then right. I, I said that to her. She was like, what? Like, she, she yeah, <laughs> right. she was like, that's not well. It, and it's not that it wasn't normal because it was normal for me, because, like I said, all my friends, are, it's just uh, not healthy. It's not effective. It's maladaptive. It's uh, it's 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 uh, it's torture. It's it's a it's a lot of things. Um that as you're when you're in it you don't realize what it is and it was the same situation where my mom was like uh, you know if you, if I, if, they, if I called the cops or child services then uh they're going to take me away from her and you know then I won't see my sister you know things like that so right. i i definitely but when you hear it you're like oh okay that's just how parents parent and then you become an adult and you're like what the f- <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and like, it didn't even occur to me to call CPS. Like, um, I don't know if you know, but, uh, this guy, Russell Peters, he's a comedian old school. Oh like, yeah, for sure. Okay. So he, I, I used to find him funny. I really don't find him funny anymore, but he has this one segment about Indian parenting and he makes this joke where the Indian kid is like, all right, dad, I'm going to call CPS. And the the joke is that the dad calls this kid's bluff, throws the kid the phone and says, go ahead, call him. But just know there's 20 minutes before that, before they get here and everyone's laughing. And I laugh too, cause I'm like LMFAO, that's totally how it is. But then at the same time, um, I remember thinking the whole time, I didn't even know what CPS was until I was 20. I literally didn't even know what, what it was. Like I didn't, know that I could call. I mean, not that I would probably, honestly, even if I did, I wouldn't call them, but like, you know, that whole guilt trip of like, it's some, and I think it's because there's so much trauma in our own parents' generations that have never been healed that unfortunately we're kind of the generation where we have to break that cycle. And it is a horrible, and it's just a ugly cycle to break because, you know, it's very manipulative, right? Like when you ask your parents to be better or you're asking them to see things from your side, they'll always find a way to manipulate you. And I, I recognize that it was manipulation, but it still worked, you know? So it's, it's, it was, it's just tough for lack of better words. Absolutely. And plus CPS does horrible marketing, you know, like right. we're at a commercials for CPS to let me know so, because the only time you see child protective services advertised are on Law and Order, and that mm-hmm. is the worst advertisement. Like it's like CPS is a complete threat to to kids. It's like, oh, he's going to be in CPS. Well, good luck uh, for that kid right. having a future. 
So you, right. you're, you know, even society is telling you that you, you don't want to call CPS. Um, right. What at, so you're 26 now. Mm -hmm. I would imagine then that uh, relationships are uh, a, a little tough for you in yeah. terms of like trusting yourself and, you know, it's like uh, and, and trusting the other person and uh, yes. the anxiety and knowing what you want and don't want. And he's like, well, you said yesterday. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, relationships are weird. And I have a very interesting quote unquote relationship history because I have never had an actual boyfriend before. And every time I tell people that they give me this look like, oh, my God, are you serious? That's so weird. And I, I say it annoyingly because it's like uh, people that the minute you say that people again look at you like there's something wrong with you. Um, and the truth of the matter is I wasn't allowed to a date when I was younger. Right. Like I was definitely like dating was out of the question until I was at least in college. Um, and, and for that matter, to, you know, I think we should start normalizing this. When I was a teenager, it's not that I wasn't interested in boys, but I was like, yeah, you cute. All right. I had a crush, but like, I had no interest in dating. Like I, and you know, we gotta, I feel like we need to start normalizing that. Like teenagers got so much shit on their plate and the way teenagers are portrayed is that all they care about is sex. And I'm like, we're curious. Absolutely. You know, teenagers are curious and they want to learn more, but it's not like our world is revolving 24 seven around sex. We're trying to figure out how the hell we have to do this assignment in one day when it's like 18 hours of worth of work, you know, or trying to make it into athletics or whatever. So that was one thing is that I wasn't even allowed to date. And I had genuinely had no interest in dating at all until I got into college. And then, you know, my first two years of college, I really was interested in dating. But then I had like this weird fling with the guy in college. Um, and that kind of was my first real experience of quote unquote dating. I was never this dude's girlfriend. That was the thing. And I think it took me at least four years to realize that I was actually the side chick. Um, because he would tell me, Hey, we're exclusive. Like we're only talking quote, talking to each other. I wasted two years of my life just quote talking with this dude. I was never his girlfriend. He'd never want to be with me in public. Um, you know, he'd never take pictures and, uh, like he'd only talk to me if something was going on in his other love life, but he'd always say we're exclusive. I'm only talking to you. Right. And then I'd have to find out from other people. They'd be like, LMFAO, no girl, he's sleeping with other women. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, I feel not only like a fool, but very like, you know, if you disrespect someone like that, I spent a little while thinking, what's wrong with me? But then I was like, nah, girl, remember who the fuck you are. Like, nah, that's his fucking problem. Again, pardon my French times too. But, you know, it was, I, I mean, I have to say that with such intensity because it's like, I, my, for a long time, I was like, there's something wrong with me. There was nothing wrong with me. I just, you know, he wasn't interested in the way that I thought he was. Miscommunication, not a great person all around on that sense, but move on. And then, after all of that, I kind of fell in love with my best friend and we were best friends for like seven years. And I was very much, there was no way there was going to be a future there, but I was just, you know, we, when we're young, we romanticize that idea. And again, a lot of my love had been taught through TV, which does a very horrible job of displaying what actual love is like and what actual relationships is like. People always said, Oh, if you fall in love with your best friend, you're really lucky because then you guys will get married. 
No one ever once told me that. Um, I mean, yeah, if you fall in love with him, that's great, but he may not fall in love with you back, you know? And then no one ever said, yeah, it's really painful to fall in love with your, but I mean, again, you can't help it, but if you fall in love with your best friend, you know, and it doesn't work out, you lose two and one kind of deal. Um, and, and there was just so much lack of actual experience that I had and that I was told everyone said that I'd find my husband in college. I absolutely did not find my husband <laughs> in college. Um, and then people act like if you don't find your husband in college and that your time is ticking and that your uterus is ticking and that you're not going to make it and you'll never find a man. And I think the worst part about all of that is it's okay if I don't want a man. It's okay if I don't want to have a relationship. My worth, and for that matter, no one's worth is dependent on whether they have a partner or not. That's something that you should want on your own terms, when you're ready, how you're ready. And if you, you know, if you want it, then you go actively look for it. Um, but then at the same time, so not only am I not interested in dating right now, but at the same time, I'm dating scary, dating so scary. And it's weird when you're kind of like this old school person um, in this new generation where, again, if you're not very experienced, people, as you get older, don't really want to date you, which is hard because they're like, oh, I don't want to be your first boyfriend because there's such a big learning curve with that. Right. But I all, you know, so it's hard for you to trust people, but it's also when you're figuring yourself out, you're also like, do I even want to date somebody right now? Because I'm a totally different person than I was a year and a half ago, you know? So someone that I would date a year and a half ago is probably not the same person I date right now. And so when you're young, dating all around is just younger, I'd say, and you're trying to figure yourself out. It's tough because you're like, who the hell am I? What do I want in a partner? What do I want in life? And, you know, you inadvertently set yourself up for heartbreak, which is, again, normal. And I'd say that it's part of life. Like you can't avoid it at all. And if you avoid heartbreak at all costs, you're not living completely. But, you know, it, it's it's hard to explain, I guess. I'm not doing a very good job of it. But <laughs> no, no, that was that was the adequate explanation. I appreciate you sharing all those things because uh, so many people grow up learning love from media, from TV and it sets these unrealistic expectations of who we are and what we want. Like you said, it, like they're always portraying kids as just uh, as being like these uh, hormone-filled creatures uh, right. that's awkwardly navigating uh, sex and romance and, and uh, everything's about the first kiss and et cetera, et cetera, and which that's a part of it. But uh, also a part of it is all the homework that you get in and trying to lug home uh, a thousand pound rucksack uh, right. to, and to do something that college, you know, I got to college. I was like, I got I got more homework in middle school than I did in college. And, right. Uh, I'm, right? Saying, <laughs> I'm saying the disrespect. Like, I, I, Yeah, college was way easier. I was like, man, this is so much easier than, than right. middle school and high school. And um, uh, but. The the thing that I've I've also learned is that the emphasis is so much on love and 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 uh, feeling in love and and the butterflies and et cetera et cetera. But there's so many other reasons to partner with someone to be with right. someone. You right. know that's why I love reading biographies because um, like I was reading George Washington's bio. And mm -hmm. there was a woman that he was madly in love with, but she, he knew that 
they wouldn't go to distance. Like it was too right. passionate. It was too much there. And then right. it was then it was Martha. You know, she was right. like four four. You know, wide framed glasses, hair up in a bun, and uh, but even though the passion was there, he knew that she would go the distance with him. And, right. and and it was tough, but you know, TV teaches you to what, where, who, what excites you? Where's your passion? And so yeah. you have to know what you want. Are you trying to go to distance, or, or are you are you wanting to live a, a roller coaster type of, of relationship? And that can change, you know, with time. Right. You know, and I even I have a whole chapter in my book on love, and it's in the nurture part, and that is something that I write about, you know, intensely. It's like. Some I, and I think one of the quotes is in there is like some fires are meant to burn up, you know, brightly but apart. They're not meant to be combined together because it leads to an explosion. It's like no one ever talks about the fact that love often is simply not enough. You got to know what your end goal is. If you plan on being married, for example, if marriage is something you want and a family is something you want, it's not enough to just simply have love for your significant other. It's like, are you compatible? Do you have and compatibility is always overlooked. It's always overlooked, which is infuriating. But compatibility is always overlooked, right? Is there respect? Is there compassion? Is there um, compromise skills, right? Like, well, if you really, really love someone, but you guys have no compromise skills as a couple, and you're, you know, if you're both fiercely passionate, but also fiercely independent, well, that's going to lead to a lot of problems that probably can't withstand 50 years of marriage, period. Um and then we're also taught that, you know, that love of your life is what you're always looking for. It's never ever explored that maybe you don't have a love of your life at all. Maybe you ha- love people differently, but you don't have like one love of your life. Or maybe you only have one love of your life, you know, or I don't know. It's just like love is so multifaceted and so diverse. And it's just this one avenue is always, always explored. And it, even that avenue is not explored accurately, which is infuriating. Um, and so, I mean, especially with love, I think that that is a area that really relies on people being more open about their experiences and understanding. And just, again, it's hard to have a completely open experience if you don't completely know yourself and know kind of where you think and what you want as an individual independent of other people's influence, if that makes sense. Yeah. We love to say, who's your favorite? We love number one. Like we, we think everything is a pyramid scheme, right? Where it's like, (laughs) who's at the top? Who's the apex? Humans are the apex. It's like, and then the the COVID came through and the the murder mosquitoes and everybody was locking doors. But, um, but like, you know, it's like, who's your favorite rapper? It's like, I don't have a favorite. Like, I, I like different rappers at different times. I'm not listening right. to Little Wayne first thing in the morning. I like right. Little Wayne for the club. Now, right. You know? <laughs> right. I mean, or, you know, NF is like a rapper that I love. I like he is one of my favorite rappers, but I actually listen to him very, very little because he's one of my favorite rappers. But in in the sense that he, no one understands me the way this dude does. So when I'm at my lowest, NF's the guy that I'm calling. But, you know, like, or on the other hand, um, there's people you listen to all the time. And, I, I, you know, like, agreed. It's just there's no favorite anything. Everybody and everything serves a different niche. And that goes for love. That goes for friendship. You know, it goes for everything. 
on your on your Instagram profile, you talk about how you you you're, you're blogging about finances and uh, health and fitness. What about finances? Don't people understand? Because I know you have your, your your master's in public policy. Uh, yeah. Talk to us about the the, the 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 finances. I mean, people don't know nothing about no money. Nothing. Oh my goodness. So my, I have, um, two bachelor's degrees, one in finance and one in economics, which they go hand in hand so well. But I think especially with COVID something that is just driving me insane is a people have no idea what a healthy economy means. And B, when it comes to finances, people got to stop looking at the stock market. Like it's the Holy grail of all finance intellectual knowledge, because it's so infuriating to see that and see that we're teaching people that because the stock market is not indicative of diddly squat for 99.9% of Americans, period. You know, um, and that's because the stock market is nothing but a guessing game and an anticipation game, period. And again, 99.9% of Americans are truly not rich enough to where stock market fluctuations are going to drastically, drastically affect their individual um, lives. And and the reason I say that is because people are like, oh, well, this stock's going down. That mean, you know, that means, oh, they're going to lay people off and their company's not doing well, blah, 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 blah. But it's like something that people need to keep in mind is looking at every, we've entered this very ugly, horrible habit where we look at everything simply through a short-term scope. And the fight, I mean, the stock market guru, Warren Buffett, he will always say, you know, he always talks about like, you can't just look at everything with a short term lens, period. And you can't just simply look at numbers alone as an indicator of health. And that seems like opposite of finances. But I always tell people, you know, yeah, numbers don't lie, but numbers only reflect whatever you put into the system. It can't reflect things that you exclude. And that goes for stats, that goes for finance, that goes for everything, that goes for the stock market. So if you really want to understand how healthy someone's finances are, you know, you got to look at their whole lifestyle. It's kind of like, you know, if you really want to understand how healthy someone is, you can't just, and again, healthy, by healthy, I mean like overall health, you know, but you know how we've entered this very very toxic stage where we just simply look at someone's body to determine whether they're healthy or not. Right. And it, it, it doesn't work like that. You know, like if you're healthy, you got to look at their eating habits. You got to look at their sleeping habits. You got to look at their, um, training habits. You got to look at their mental health habits, their emotional health habits, um, how much screen time they're limiting, you know, are they doing overall health for all different departments? It's the same way for finance. You want to look at a company's finance or even your own health finances how ne- unnecessarily is this company spending? What are they spending there on? How is the happiness of employees of an area? And if you want to look at personal finance, it's like, okay, what am I overspending on? Where can I cut down on discretionary expenses if I feel I need to? What's going into my savings? Am I matching my 401k? Is my company matching my 401k? Do I have um, an understanding of how I would want to invest my finances if I have money here and there. Am I doing enough research on my own? Do I prefer stocks versus certificates of deposit, you know, or um, bonds? All of those things, I think, are things that people don't understand about finance. And the one big thing I would also recommend, highly, highly recommend, is 
part of finance people's job is to make you feel stupid. It is to make you feel like you don't know anything about your finances and you can't do shit without them. Because, and, and I mean, again, from an economic standpoint, if you think about that, that makes sense, right? Because if you're in financial services, you need to tell people why they need your services. And part of that tactic is to make you feel like you don't know, but this service does. But the truth is finance is not as complicated as it seems to be. It just requires research and it requires a trusted resource to help you. And furthermore, a lot of, at the end of the day, a lot of things can be boiled down to greed and stupidity. So if you're wondering, you know, people look at like, why are we spending money on this? Or, you know, I mean, you take the 2008 financial collapse. That is the biggest example of what greed and stupidity at its very core. That's what happens. And so I think, you know, those were, I don't know if any of those were actual financial lessons or at all or financial tips, but, you know, you have to, if you want to know financial health, you can't just focus on one, one little portion. The overall health is dependent on health of multiple facets in your life. You, you know, the two things that I'm just learning, because uh, I'm, I'm reading John D. Rockefeller's book, uh, Titan. Uh-huh. And, yep. uh, and I, I was, because I like, to, I like to, to read about people who made the money. And mm-hmm. uh, instead of reading like a money book, per se, because I'm like, I yep. want to know what people are doing in real life. Uh, right. And and two things he said that that I didn't realize about money and 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 mindset is that he said one borrow money whenever you can borrow money. It, mm-hmm. it, it, he's like borrow it before you need it. Um, that way okay. you can uh, leverage it. And then two was hire skilled people as you find them, not as you need them. So the the mindset yes. there was. To a lot of times, and I find it at least with myself, is that I will wait till I need the money to ask for the money or to borrow the money. And he's like, no, 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 no. Get the money wherever you can. Always be borrowing money. Always be looking for grants and, and things like that. Uh, always have a, 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 a well, not a well, but like a, a safety, safety mm-hmm. net of, of money, yeah. uh, but also of people, of resources. When you when you meet somebody who is smarter than you or, or skilled in an area, get their information. Don't think, well, I don't need this person in yes. my life right now. Get their information. Stay in contact with them. Say hello. You never know when down the road uh, a friendship could develop or they could give you some business tips that will save you money on hiring a professional. Absolutely. Right? I mean, I, I think that hits it like right on the head is kind of like. If you're recognized, you know, and I think that also requires, a, like, you know, like you said, if you need, if you want to borrow before you need it, that requires a little bit of anticipation on your part. And, you know, which requires analysis, which people I think don't do until they're like, oh shit, you know, you don't want to be in that boat where you're like, oh shit, you want to be in that boat where you're like, huh, it might happen. So let me just go ahead and be proactive. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the people thing, I don't think people realize the wealth of as skilled individuals and assets. And you never, ever want to be the smartest person in the room ever period. Like that is, and that's almost selfish because there's all like, you want to be able to take value from wherever you can go, you know? Absolutely. I I'm always, when I meet people, not only do I put their name on my phone, I put in what they do, what I found fascinating about them. 
if if I could like also put in their uh, birthday so I can send them a, a happy birthday, just just these little follow ups, just these little touches here and there. Uh, and, you know, in the event that I do need something, I, and not to say that it's, it's to use people, but it, it's to one stay in touch and also to realize that I uh, that I have resources that are available yes. to me because when you hit rock bottom, it's very easy to think that you have no resources, and then you end right. up panicking, and then you make it worse. Exactly. You know, in, in economics, there's like two concepts called self interest and the double coincidence of wants, and The thing about self-interest and rationality is that like all of our self-interests are intertwined. You know, um, I don't know if you've ever watched Friends, but if you have, there's an episode where Phoebe and Joey are fighting and Joey says there's no such thing as a selfless good deed. And it's kind of like when you first hear that, you're like, oh, my God, yes, there is. Like, how? But, you know, economically speaking and finance again, financially speaking, it's like all of our self-interests are intertwined. So it's great that you do all of those things because, like it's not selfish in the sense of you're like, Oh, you know, this could help me one day. And then like, how hard is it to send a happy follow up, happy birthday message, right? Like not only does that show that you care, it's small, but yeah, why not? Like you should have all of those resources in your arsenal because vice versa, that person may find you as a resource one day, you know, it's like our self interests are interconnected and we got to quit looking at that. Like it's always so selfish because that's what makes the world work, you know? Yeah, yeah, we, but we are we are taught that uh, oh, you know, uh, you're so selfish. We're all worried about being selfish, but when we realize we're all interdependent and we all add value at different times, then yes. we we understand the importance of. And also remember, people love to feel needed, right? right. People love to say, "Hey, I helped that person uh, out," and that's why they got from A to B. Or right. I'm the one who introduced them to such and such. People love that. And uh, and I know I used to struggle with that feeling of asking people for things. And the wraparound for that is when somebody does something for you that helps you get from A to B is make sure you go back and let them know the results of their effort. Right. 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 Not, just don't say thank you in a moment. Like if you ask somebody for a reference and they give you the reference so that you can get a job, just don't say thank you for the reference. After you get the job, say, hey, man, not only did I get the job, uh, I ran into such and such and such and such. And it allowed me to do this. And now I can pay for my kids to go to college. Like tell them all the good things that have come from their one act of kindness. And then right. that helps to multiply that act of kindness. And it helps people, I think, feel like, you know, like many heroes because we grow up watching Captain America and Iron Man and all these heroes and we all want to be heroes, right? We all want to feel like we're saving the day. But in the real world, it doesn't happen like that. But you help somebody get a job, you're like a hero to that person, you know, like you helped them through a dark time or uh, conversely, someone helps you, right? Like you remember them as an integral part of your life. And I think that's so essential to human nature is like not only to be needed, but to be the hero of the day for somebody, however we can. Bruno, that's uh, I'm sorry, I cut, didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, I, I love that idea of uh, many heroes uh, yeah. to save the day. 
What now? Do you have a daily routine? Do you have a morning routine? Or how are you, uh, you know, managing uh, your emotions and vibes right now? Oh, good question. So I read this tweet somewhere where someone said, "If you are an empath, the world sucks and nothing's working right now." So I felt that one on a spiritual level because um, I'm absolutely an empath. But I would say, for one thing during all this time and during my emotions, like I'm still out of work. Um, I'm still navigating everything and whatnot, but for my emotions, I will say I started integrating yoga and meditation into my life daily. And that is a big deal for me because I used to be a bodybuilder and a power lifter. And I used to be like very much one of those obnoxious people where I looked down upon yoga as not a real form of exercise. I looked down upon meditation as like hippy dippy shit. Um, I, I, I did. I was like, if you're not moving weights, then you're not slamming in. You know, I was like one of those people. Um, and like no shade against it, but it's like, um, that is so essential to healing your body in different ways. So I would say that's essential. So in the morning, what I do is I also do intermittent. I think intermittent fasting is weird because it's basically saying like you breaking, you know, it's like breakfast, but I have extended now. So I don't eat for pretty much 16 hours. So I stop eating at eight o'clock every single night. And then I don't have my first meal until generally, uh, 1230 or one. And a lot of people are like, Oh my gosh, how are you surviving? The truth of the matter is, is like a, our bodies don't need that much food. What we need is nutrition and sustenance. And I think a lot of people think that that is equivalent to eating a lot of food, which is not, I'm having, I have a very healthy diet. I don't eat, um, I eat a lot of legumes and beans and vegetables and fruits. I don't, and I drink a ton of water. I have only one cup of tea in the morning. I, um, you know, I don't have a lot of dairy. I have a protein shake every single day, you know, like the basics of nutrition. And I think people try to overcomplicate things or like try to find a shortcut. My biggest advice is on that is don't, there's no such thing as a shortcut to health, period, period. There's no such thing. You want a healthy body, you got to eat healthy. You want to have a strong body, you got to train, period. So what I'll do is um, I'll wake up, have, you know, my vinegar water in the morning, which sounds gross, but every day I drink a lid full of vinegar and hot water before I have anything else. And that's kind of, that kind of acts like a Drano and um, a deep cleanse for your body. And then um, I work out for about an hour to hour and a half every single day. And I switch up my routine. So someday it's a intense cardio hit set. Someday it's just deep stretch yoga. Some days it's Pilates, you know, and again, since I don't have access to a gym, I kind of do whatever I want on YouTube. Um, and then I limit my, I try my very hardest to limit my screen time. It's very, very hard. Um, and I didn't have Instagram before, but ever since I had Instagram, I yikes, like (laughs) social media is not spectacular for mental health. I'm just going to put that out there, but if it's essential to your work, like it is mine, I'd say, I limit it. Like, so when I'm done, I'm done. Like I'm turning it off because I'm, you know, I'm not so important to where I need to be on Instagram 24 seven. Um, and then I, I also like, if I'm watching TV or if I'm relaxing for the day, I do literally whatever I want. So I'm learning how to say, okay, you know what? I just want to watch something funny and light. So like right now I'm watching Phineas and Ferb 26, grown ass woman watching Phineas and Ferb and I am living for it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I try to feed my mind things that are either going to help it learn or things that just bring it happiness. And, you know, Disney brings that childhood nostalgia. So that's another thing. Um, 
But then at night, at night, I have a very strong routine where I um, clean my kitchen. I do the dishes. I do my nightly face, you know, oil face care. What's the word? Skincare. That's the word. Skincare routine. Um, and then every night I do a deep yoga stretch and then I do like 20 minutes of meditation. Then my phone is, you know, and my phone's been off for like two hours and then I play Sudoku or, you know, I do a Sudoku puzzle. I read something light and something that I've read before just because I enjoy reading it again. I try not to read anything new at night because then I don't sleep. Um, and then that's it. I mean, I know that was kind of like not very much a daily routine, but it it really what I do every single day is pretty consistent. And it's always in the overall goal of full health, physical health, emotional health, mental health. And some days one is lacking. And so I take extra precautions to feed it however I can. I love that. I appreciate you sharing that with us because, you know, a, a lot of people are like, how do I even start my day? A shower? Apparently a vinegar shot. That's that's the way to get up. I mean, you have a vinegar it's shot. Disgusting. It's disgusting. It is. <laughs> it's gross. But, you know, I take eight ounces and put a cap full of vinegar water. And that is absolutely how I start, you know, start my day. And then, you you know, you make your bed. Right. And then you um, read something or whatever. But, yeah, vinegar shot. That'll wake you up. Definitely. I, I love that. Uh, I, I, I do. I do a cold shower in the morning. I, I that. That vinegar shot, I, I used to do it, and it was it, it's too much of a wake up for Leo Flowers. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but that, I get it, it. I get it. <laughs> um, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think the listeners should know in terms of uh, helping them cope with anxiety, depression, or uh, suicidality? Oh, yikes. That's a good question. Yikes in like the best way. Um, no, I think first of all, I have to say you're a wonderful interviewer and you're such a natural facilitator of conversation. So that, I mean, amazing conversation, but I would, I, I mean, I think something honestly that always stuck with me is my, you know, I would ask my friend flat out, why do I not get to take my own life in my own terms? Um, I'd ask this question where I'd say, if you, if you don't like your job, you move jobs. If you don't like where you live, you move. So if I am not happy right now with my life being alive or just not being here, why don't I have the right to take that into my own hands? And she looked at me and, and like very thoughtfully and she said, you know, because it's, it's such a permanent decision. It's a permanent decision and not that your pain is temporary or not that what you're feeling is temporary, but more than anything that you learn to not only move and process the pain, but use that pain as a way to learn more about yourself, to make yourself better. And that in of itself is an absolute privilege and to deny the world of your voice and your story through such a permanent decision, like maybe taking your own life or just not giving a shit about making yourself better is a disservice to the world because your story matters. And what you have to bring to this world matters. And again, if you are, you're not Captain America, that doesn't mean that you can't be Captain America to one small individual. You can be a mini hero to somebody. And if you are a mini hero to yourself, that in of itself is life's greatest blessing. So I think that's it. I love it. Plug all your things. Where can people find you? Uh, I know you don't want them to find you on Instagram so much, but 
plug all your things where the, the book. So, um, the book is on Amazon and I, the ebook will hopefully be coming up like soon. Um, because I made my ebook international, so it's taking some time to connect with Amazon, but the paperback is on Amazon. It's called sincerely life, a conversation to find yourself. And you can absolutely find that on Amazon. It, what it has been a number one release multiple times. And it's, I mean, that's amazing. And, um, that is God's grace right there. And I, my website is punamdesai.com. And, you know, um, Instagram, I think, is a platform that I'm most active on. So if people want to connect with me via social media, I would highly recommend, you know, as much as Instagram is something I'm trying to control. But that is also the best way to contact me via social media. I do a lot of Instagram lives where I like to hear, you know, very much like you're doing, Leo. I just like to learn more about people and give that platform for them to share their story and I, so I appreciate you giving me that platform today, which is very, very generous. And I appreciate that. And, um, yeah, I mean, those are the main places people can find me. I'm, I do my best to respond to people. And, uh, if you want to get a contact with me, email wise, um, just DM me on Instagram because it's a lot easier to share that way. I appreciate it. And then last question, you already kind of answered this already, but in, in case you had some other words. I ask this of all my guests because uh, I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be mm-hmm. on the precipice of ending their life. Mm-hmm. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Puna? I would say your pain is real and it hurts and you it is, an, it is exhausting to feel it, I understand. But no matter no matter what you matter to this world and it sounds kind of cliche almost but more than anything i i'd, I'd want to give them a hug and say you do matter and you are the captain of all of your own desires your own mind and that yes your pain is real but we can you can heal you can heal. Some days the healing is harder than others, but the world needs you to heal because we want you. We need you. And you are always going to be an inspiration to somebody. And to deny the world the privilege of having you in the world's presence is something that would be hard to lose and hard to not have. And so if anything, it is a privilege to have you. And I would want to have the privilege of having you in this world with your message and your story. Thank you so much, Puno. Thank you so much to listeners for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 273-TALK or any of the other numbers listed in the show notes. There's talk, there's text, there's group chats, there's all the things. There's local, there's international numbers for those of you in, in South America and London and Colombia and Canada. Uh, we're all, I have all these listeners throughout the world. There is a resource for you listed in the show notes. Uh, you can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Puno. Thank you, Leo. This was wonderful, and I appreciate your time.